0: Clarence Darrow, probably one of the greatest lawyers of his time, (laughs) he hated lawyers. At its heart,
1: being a personal injury lawyer is about helping people. And sometimes to help people, you have to get creative.
0: He said they're not creative thinkers, they're afraid to innovate, they don't read enough, they don't excel in areas beyond the law. His point was, we have to do all of that to be sustainable. Not just sustainable in your practice, but sustainable as an individual that has any kind of cultural impact.
1: You're listening to Personal Injury Marketing Mastermind, the show where elite personal injury attorneys and leading-edge marketers give you exclusive access to growth strategies for your firm. Mike Papantonio is a progressive legal legend. Through his work in mass torts, he's gone toe-to-toe with huge multinational corporations and held them accountable, helping recover billions of dollars for his clients along the way. Throughout his career, he's found creative ways to expand his reach. He's hosted radio and television, written fiction and nonfiction, and founded the Mass torts Made Perfect conference, all to increase his awareness of corporate misconduct and consumer risk. I had the pleasure of speaking to Mike about his approach to media, Mass torts Made Perfect, and what holds lawyers back from meeting their potential. I'm your host, Chris Stryer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. Being at the forefront of marketing is all about understanding people. So let's get to know our guest. Here's Mike Papantonio, senior partner of Levin Papantonio Rafferty and founder of Mass Torts Made Perfect.
0: Yeah, I was. Um, I, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent back then. That was a whole Sandinista picture. You, it was a little before your time, but there was a, a revolution going on and everybody coming out of University of Florida that wanted to be a journalist and wanted to do foreign correspondent was heading down there. I had a friend that has said, look, before you make any kind of move, why don't you consider law school? You know, I guess law school always always been in the back of my mind, but they said, I want you to meet somebody. And I went and down and met a really important lawyer at this time, probably one of the most important Trial lawyers of his time, he had he had developed just a whole string of courtroom techniques that we still use today. His name was Perry Nichols, and he was uh, he's actually from Miami, but he had a place he raised cattle in uh, Arcadia, Florida. Which is a small cattle town down in central Florida. One of the places I lived, and I went down and met him. And um, you know, after doing that and talking to him, uh, I came away pretty convinced that that was the thing that maybe fit me. And just his one of his points was that you know, you can have a, a law degree and still be a journalist. So that was kind of uh, that was the kind of thing that really moved me towards maybe fitting in that area.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you've written a number of books, some fiction books. And you know, let's let's talk about that. You know, how has the journalism background helped you from a marketing and, and media perspective over your career?
0: Yeah, it's been really helpful as you, you know, over the years, the last 20 two, 25 years. I've been a regular contributor on MSNBC. Fox, I was uh, the liberal commentator on Fox for two, two and a half years, uh, where it would be me and three other folks arguing with me. Right. And then and then from there, um, just a whole host of different programs that I've been on. Uh, Air America was something that was a, was a liberal Talk show program that it it had uh, it was a network actually. at Al Franken, it had me, Janine Garofalo, Rachel Maddow, Chuck D, Steve Earle, uh, Sam Cedar, just just a remarkable group of folks that were liberal talkers and it lasted a it lasted a couple of years, but more importantly, those folks all ended up going into their area of journalism. Um, you know of course Rachel on MSNBC, all these uh, Groffalo still very active in politics, all of these folks, Chank Uger, which you probably know, he's uh, mm-hmm. the young Turks out, of, out in California. So out of that came people that stayed in their area, Of journalism, at least in progressive progressive journalism. And then um, I've always thought it's important that lawyers have some diversity. And so I was always a writer. I I started out with a couple of books that really weren't designed to be books. I used to give uh, speeches about, you know, that landed on the idea of quality of life. How important is quality of life for a, a lawyer that's stressed out from every kind of angle. What's so important about that lawyer finding quality life? And I gave speeches about that. And somebody said one time, well, why don't you just reduce some of that to a book? And so out of there came a book called In Search of Atticus Finch. I think Mm -hmm. it's in its fourth or fifth printing right now. They use it in law schools and other places. But that was a product of me sending out questionnaires all over the country to lawyers and finding out what it is that they could do to improve their quality of life. And, and in there, something was very obvious lawyers who do one thing lawyer 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 and that's all they do they don't have any other horizons they don't have any other aspects to their lives are very very unhappy their quality of life usually is not what it should be and their burnout rate is tremendous so i've always tried to find things that took me away from uniquely the practice of law and, and I, I thought, well, you know, we handle cases that are just remarkable cases. You know, we the tobacco litigation started with right. this firm. Uh, I think we've handled 58 of the largest ph- pharmaceutical cases in the country, uh, you know, 12 or 13, 14 of the biggest environmental cases. So I, I said, well, why don't I take that and put it into a. Uh, into a series of books matter of fact, one's coming out in about two months. It's about human, the human trafficking case that we're handling. So the idea is that most lawyers want to write about themselves. You know, they, they, Mm -hmm. they want to do this biography stuff and it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, if you look at the numbers, their family reads it. Their friends read it, maybe, or they tell them that they read it. Right, but they don't really—they don't really care. So, what, what I wanted to do is I wanted to tell the story uh, of these very important cases and how what the impact was socially on these very important cases. But I wanted to do it with fiction, so I created mm-hmm. a character uh, named Nicholas Deacon Thomas, and that character just spins all the way through what is now coming up—the fourth book. I didn't do it only because I had a A journalism background. I did it because out of the first time I took a look at what the impact was for for lawyers and the quality of life, it was very clear to me. You've got to have some diversity in your life. You just have to. And so that's why I spent so much time in those areas of TV media, radio media, written media. And it's worked out for me pretty well. I
1: love all of that. I just think you know, when you get in the grind, you you got to have some some diversity. You got to be a little uncomfortable and do different types of things to have these experiences. Is the book is it more you know your main character, the protagonist? Is it like a hero's journey of them throughout this like arc?
0: It's a hero that is um, broken in so many ways. It's not a there, there's no. Uh, you know, hero worship about this character. He's human. Uh, he's very talented trial lawyer that's done a lot of important things, but he's human nonetheless, and all the characters are human because the, you know, the trick about fiction is you have to have some plausibility. I think sometimes in fiction writing, they create these characters. You go, eh, I don't really know anybody like that. And so all of the characters, there's a character in the third book. It's called... Uh, yeah, yeah. That her name is Janina Ravalo. She's a a broken character, but you do love her, and right. you know you come away thinking, wow, you know, look at what she's accomplishing. And um, it's called uh, uh, Law and Vengeance, and it tells you about her character. Gina Romano, it, her her character is just this bizarre character that seems to get things done, but it's more realistic. It's kind of a composite of lawyers I've met over the years. So that's fun to me, you know, just kind of jumping into that.
1: Mike has been hosting radio and TV for 17 years and has been a legal correspondent on major networks even longer. So I asked Mike his advice for lawyers looking to make media a part of their marketing strategy.
0: Here's the advice. Corporate media is dead or dying. Okay. You just have to believe me. It's, it's people are cutting cables. They, they, the credibility of corporate media is in the tank right now. And so things like you're doing right now, the things that you talk about in a podcast, people can't get enough podcasts. They, they just, They want to hear these peculiar stories. They want to hear what corporate media can't talk about. I do a show now called America's Lawyer. It shows all over the world and it's Russian television. Why did I choose to go there? Well, because when I was doing media with the corporate media, uh, you know, I worked with um, Ed Schultz who was a anchor for a long time. And we'd be getting ready to tell a story. It might be that Bear has a product out there that's killing women by the hundreds. It might be that, uh, that DuPont is destroying an entire ecosystem. And we'd be in the close count. It'd be 10, 9, 8. And at 5, they'd say, Pap, got to kill the story, go to con law or something else. And that happened so many times. Even with my partner, people don't realize this, but Joe Scarborough used to be my law partner, and we helped him get that job with MSNBC. But even when I was with him, the corporate impact for corporate media. You know, the advertisers had such power. Corporate media can't tell a story, Chris, right? because their advertisers won't let them or because their political involvement, they're tribal about their politics. You know, I'm Republican. I have to tell the Republican side I'm Democrat and I got to tell the Democrat side. People are tired of it. You should see the numbers on it. They are tired of it. So what does this do? It creates an opportunity to come in and do something different, exactly like you're doing. Let me tell you a quick story. 20 years ago in Vegas, I was telling lawyers, go home, start, get to a local TV station, buy an hour, do something where you're creating your own media, do a radio show, create your own media. And then when podcasting came along, create your own media. When uh, internet came along, create your own media. Some folks listen to me and it has really worked out very, very well for them. And others, here's the problem, Chris, it's tough to tell a lawyer to think about something different. They want to grab that same, you know, whatever's been handed down to them. They just want to embrace that. They're afraid to say, no, I reject that or I might accept it, but I want to modify it and make it better. It's so difficult to get lawyers to do that. You may not know this, but Clarence Darrow, probably one of the greatest lawyers of his time, (laughs) he hated lawyers. He was one of the most impressive lawyers of his time. He said they're not creative thinkers. They're afraid to innovate. They don't read enough. They don't excel in areas beyond the law. His point was, we have to do all of that to be sustainable. Now that's not, not just sustainable in your practice, but sustainable as an individual that has any kind of cultural impact. You can't covey up in one little corner and say, okay, I'm gonna have 1-800-AUTO, give me a call. You know, you can't do that. Right. You have to expand the things you think about. I, I
1: think that's a fantastic point. One of the things I've noticed is individuals that have listened to my podcast, they they have this sense of trust. I've already developed this rapport with them. And the other thing is that I really appreciate about what you're saying is if you just do what everybody else is doing, you'll never stand out. But if you do something different or have a different opinion, just by the nature of being different, you automatically stand out.
0: Yeah. And your your point, Chris, is uh, this is really going to shock you. This This is a real big shocker. When I started first writing books, I sent out questionnaires all over the country, 2,000 questionnaires. And the response was amazing what they sent back. And it's difficult to get people to, to answer questions, but they did answer these. And then I gave them to a couple of shrinks who are very good at what they do. And they look through it. And I, and I said, well, what, what, is it, what is it that sometimes holds lawyers back from doing extraordinary things? You know what it is? Fear of rejection fear of failure. Uh, and here's, here's the way it was described. They come up and they come up in a setting where maybe they're president of their high school class, and then they're president of their fraternity or president of their sorority and they're you know, homecoming queen. And all they've known their entire life was acceptance and adulation. Okay. All of a sudden they're put into a setting where they, to grow, they have to take chances. They have to face rejection that what they're talking about may be rejected and they're not good at it. They're not good at it. The ones with thick skin understand that everything about what we do as a lawyer is based on a, an underpinning of law of average. Some things we do, some cases we handle are going to be great. We're not, they're not all going to be great. Some people are going to tell us no. I don't want to go to trial. You know, lawyers think I don't want to go to trial because a jury may tell me no. Well, you know, try 10 cases and you're going to win six. Four are going to tell you no, but you can't be afraid of rejection. And that holds true day to day for lawyers. They're afraid to move outside that narrow little comfort zone. Am I doing the same thing that Mary's doing down the street? Oh, all she's doing is workers comp and automobile. I can't take on anything beyond that. That is right. wrong thinking. And it is so tough to break through. Jeez, I, I
1: couldn't agree more. And, and just by what you said, just I, I think of so many firms that even we work with that, that don't try a lot of cases. So they're getting yeah. the low ball offers, right? Even yeah. if you go, you know those. So you, you start winning, you're gonna get some better offers for the ones you don't take to court. And I, I think about all these individuals that are first in to a particular niche. I know we're gonna talk about mass torts. You know, we, we had... Um, I'm trying to think Levin from the nursing home abuse, you know, where he mm. really embraced and went all in there. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and he just, he automatically stood out because he was first in. And
0: I mean, don't you love that? Just this guy saying, I don't want to do what everybody on my street is doing. Got damn cars falling out of the sky, crushing people. And hey, call one 800 auto Who does that? Who says, right. yeah, this is, this is my life. Or, or, or Levin, who says, you know, I can, I can have a better social impact, okay? I can do really well by doing some good, okay? It's very difficult to get that idea across because that comfort zone, the fear of rejection, there's always work in there.
1: In pursuing mass torts, Mike challenges some of the most powerful, well-funded companies on the planet asked him how he assesses risk with these big cases, and if there's anything that still makes him anxious.
0: Massive, massive anxiety, massive risk. I mean, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of opioids right now, my God, you, you know, when a firm's spending $50 million to, for an idea, that's kind of the risk. But but we look at everything like a trial as a trial lawyer would look. Okay, when I look at a project, I'm saying I'm looking at one right now. Uh, I'm looking at Paraquat. Now, there's real problems with Paraquat. You understand the warning on Paraquat is massive. It's like, you know, everything except your eyeballs might pop out and your head might explode. Don't use this stuff. So it sounds bad, right? For the applicator, from the applicator's stand, it sounds bad. And then from the uh, overspray where people simply, they're not applicators, but they are people out there that might be exposed. But here's what sometimes people don't understand. You have to anticipate. You have to be able to visualize what do the documents probably look like for Chevron. What did they know about the development of Parkinson's disease and its relationship to these chemicals long before they ever made it known? So at some point, there's a notion. And notion is documents have the ability to drive damages. All right. So I don't simply look at a project and say, oh, God, this is... Now, Paraquat is a great example. I didn't just jump into Paraquat and say, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm analyzing it even today. How, how is the case going to try? I'm always trying to visualize what happens in trial. And if you talk to most trial lawyers, I mean, people who really do try these cases, they're going to tell you the same thing. They, they project and they anticipate and they're able to look into a project and say, you know what, I bet on cross-examination, it's going to be a bloodbath when I have that person on the other side of, of of the table with me. When I start talking about their documents, we've developed something called an attack document bounce. It's very specific to what we do. It's unusual. When I look at it, I'm always saying, how is that gonna work in this case? And you know, I could be wrong on paraguay. We've been wrong one time. And, you know, in in 21 years advising at Mass Torts, and that was on Accutane. But understand, we still won the first three cases tried in Accutane. Eight million, four million, seven. We won those cases. But then we had the judge that was a reasonable, just middle middle line judge. She moved on and she died ultimately. And we were, uh, was replaced by a Nazi. You know, it's just, this guy was a fruitcake that's something you can't anticipate. It's a intervening cause that you just don't even have to see coming. So we've been pretty good about calling them.
1: You know, I love that what you're saying, because I hear that a lot in sports. You know, know, there's a lot of sports analogies where the greatest players, they visualize kind of the outcome and how the game's going to go. And, you know, these top performers like, Hey, I already knew that I was going to be successful. And I appreciate that y'all a lot of times here, Retrospectives, retrospectives, retrospectives. Mm-hmm. What went right? What went mm-hmm. wrong? You mm-hmm. know, postmortems. So mm-hmm. I think I can really appreciate that you're doing like an advanced retrospective.
0: Yeah, it's that's a good way to put it. It really is. Yeah, it's just a it's a percentage analysis, isn't it? Is it better than sixty percent chance that when I'm in a deposition, in a real, real well organized attack deposition, that I'm going to rock their world? You see. And that's the way I look at everything. Love it.
1: Let's talk about Mass Torts Made Perfect. You know, I'd love to hear the story about how that got started. You know, was it, hey, how are we going to get attention and thought leadership? What are we going to do?
0: Yeah. Okay. so a friend of mine, uh, we actually were roommates in law school. Uh, not in law school, but an undergrad at University of Florida. It was John Morgan uh who, you know, built more of a single event kind of practice. But he and I, uh, you know, we we were good friends. And so we were young, I mean, kids, man, just starting to practice law. And I had written a book and um and so what he had this idea is how to build a million-dollar practice. I said, sure, John, let's let's give it a shot. And so we, we start showing up in cities all over the country. Uh, Atlanta, maybe we got 100 people. We go to L.A. and we got 25. <laughs> I mean, you never know what you're going to get, right? But there's this big ad talk about us, what we've done, why they ought to come. John was more single event. You know, he does auto and comp and that kind of thing. I came from asbestos. I tried asbestos cases all over the country. And so I said, well, you know, I kind of want to do this, this mass tort thing put together mass torts made perfect because I thought in my mind that you had to create energy around this. Because when we started, Chris, you had these these characters that weren't even trial lawyers. They were class action wogs. All they knew how to do was class action. Hell, they'd never taken a deposition, for God's sakes. If they walked in a courtroom to have trial a case, they'd pass out. But those were the people running what was kind of, you call it class action, mass torts, kind of a hybrid. And one time in Atlanta, uh, one of them was on the stage, a guy named Stan Chesley. I had a consortium of lawyers that had sent me a lot of breast implant cases. And he was up on stage with his cadre of, you know, class action wogs. Talking about how he's going to settle this, and and I picked up a mic. I said, "Mr. Chesley, you're not going to do anything with my cases. I've got more cases than you have got. I'm going to try my cases. And you know what? This is a new day where it comes to class action and mass tort. The right after that is when we started mass torts made perfect, and it just continued to grow. Man, I mean, it just love it. It was, you know, we we wanted to attract lawyers. I mean, real trial lawyers to try and mass tort cases, not these, you know, brief writers.
1: Love it. Love it. And, uh, you know, you've had some past speakers, you've had some entertainers, you've had Bill Clinton, Joe Namath, David Blaine, Whoopi Goldberg, you know, who's one of the most memorable people that's came to uh, mass torts made perfect for their performance.
0: Unfortunately, he didn't make it there. We did it with, mass, with two, and the last two were uh, Al Pacino, who I interviewed, and um, uh, Matthew McConaughey. I mean, my God. I mean, you know, sitting there interviewing Al Pacino, this icon, and he wanted to talk. I mean, I think if he had been Vegas, he would have talked for two hours. I had to say, Mr. Pacino, you know— we got to move on <laughs> so 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 That's amazing I mean, th- there's a lot of people like that that we've been involved with on the uh, athletic side probably Terry Bradshaw Joe Namath what an incredible person man i remember having dinner with him and his knees are in terrible shape, Chris. I mean, he's always in pain, but people would come up to him and whoever it was, he would stand up and you could see just the pain in his one couple came up and they said, well, one of, one of the people attended the conference, Mr. Namath, would you sing happy birthday to my oh, wife? Man. And I'm like, Oh my God. But he did. So, oh, so that's I mean, amazing. amazing. Ellie Wiesel. I mean, how do you beat that? I mean, the guy that, that wrote nine, Survivor of Auschwitz that tells the Holocaust story. We have had every iteration, you know, from Bill Maher, then you jump over to Ellie Wiesel, and, you know, you've got all of these folks that just add quality to that program. And um, we'll always do that. You know, we, people think, well, these guys must make a lot of, we don't make money on that. We lose. I, I think, I think every program ends up costing us in addition to what everybody pays probably ends up costing us $450,000. I mean, the opening party, the opening party, we typically spend anywhere between 350 and $400,000 for drinks. and terps. So, yeah.
1: I would say that's probably the epitome of that loss leader.
0: We, we joke about that. What an expensive loss leader, huh?
1: Yeah. And I, uh, the other thing funny too, is, you know, if you're the guy behind Pacino, like, Hey, you go tell him, you go
0: tell him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's been a fun experience, man. Uh, My daughter is now practicing law with me and she's going to step into some of that leadership uh, along with Troy Rafferty, who's uh, I recruited Troy Rafferty practiced law with us kind of about maybe 20, 25 years ago. And as soon as he as soon as he walked in, man, I said, this is somebody who is going to be there to to grow this. Place long after I'm gone he's just a remarkable trial lawyer, just a great lawyer all the way around. So so we're planning it. We're planning ahead.
1: That's incredible. And and on that, our, our final
0: question here is what else is on the horizon for, for Mike Papantonio? Well, I think my obligation right now is uh, we have so many employees. You know, we've got tons of employees, got tons of lawyers and employees, paralegal secretaries. And so there's a responsibility to those people, isn't there? You don't just say, well, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go home now. I've had a great career, there's nothing else I want to do. And so you have to, you have to take that whether you want to or not, and say, I've got to stay in this game. You know, I've got to make sure that these people have a secure future. And what I do matters. The decisions I make matters. The trials that I win or lose, that matters. So it's not like you can just, um, when you're so committed to something for so long, you can't just you know, throw in the towel and go home. Now you can take, as you may know, I take extended time off. I mean, I'll jump on my boat and go to the islands or something like that, Mm -hmm. but I don't, uh, the the idea of me saying, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go home now, it's, it's not likely.
1: It's so clear from talking to Mike that he believes in what he does. Having a TV show or starting a conference isn't about Mike increasing his profile. It's about broadening his audience so that he can help more people. If you stop thinking about marketing as clicks or TV spots and start thinking of it as how you can help the most people, then you can get really creative. And as Mike says, do well by doing good. I'd like to thank Mike Papantonio from Levin Papantonio Rafferty for sharing his story with us. Now, hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to the Personal Injury Marketing Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing.